Thank you very much, Steve, for leading us in our worship tonight. And as we think about this subject of goodness, I came uh, prepared with my little prayer card, and I also brought some fruit. Don't know where I'm gonna put it. It's not one of those ones with multicolored segments. But I wonder how you've been getting on reading this card and using it as a daily prayer jog, memory jog. We've been using it and learning that it's not one of those prayers that suffers from frequent use. Uh, The more I read it, the more I realize I need to read it and use it and pray it. And so if you haven't got a card, there are still one or two available in the entrance at the back. And I would encourage you to use it. Uh, because certainly frequent use is a good thing. I have two uh, opposite products in mind as I think about frequent use, head and shoulders, which says on it for frequent use. You can use it every day, twice a day. It doesn't matter how often you you use it. Apparently your hair won't fall out. Uh, Whether that's working or not, you can judge. Uh, The other is infrequent use. My car runs with an oil that apparently is long life oil and it doesn't need to be changed as often as uh, old oils were and it just keeps going and going. And somehow or other the computer in the car tells me when I need to get the oil changed, but it's one of these things that you just don't need to worry about. But this is one of those prayers that I find the more I read it, the more I realize I need to read it, the more I need it to uh, change my life and my thinking. Here's what John Stott said about his own spiritual life. For many years, I have recited to myself every day the ninefold fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22, 23, and have prayed for the fullness of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says this, as I meditate every day on these graces, on the fruit of the Spirit, I've noticed recently that the first is love and the last is temperance. Now love is self-giving and temperance is self-control. So holiness concerns what we do with ourselves It is seen in the mastery of self and in the giving of self. And the life of the Spirit is that which relates to everyday life. An activity where every day we give ourselves away and we bring our appetites under control and those attitudes that so easily control us we bring them into subjection. Often on Sundays, my dad and Janet's dad rehearse a kind of a little drama that they've developed over many years and rehearse the same sort of banter. And the dishes are cleared away from the table, brought into the conversation. And the conversation becomes very intense around the table for about 10 minutes. And then Jim will say to Arthur, Arthur, I think I hear someone doing the dishes. Surely it's our turn to help out. And uh, that remarkably coincides with the last pot being put in the drawer. 
and they come in and inspect the kitchen. And as they did last Sunday, I presented them with a book that I'd read in preparation for tonight. And it was called The Everyday Gospel, A Theology of Washing the Dishes. And how we do everyday activities helps us see if the fruit of the Spirit really is ripening in our lives or if it's limited to the special business of praise and prayer and personal evangelism. I should say both those men are great examples of muscular Christianity and they do get their hands dirty uh, in the kitchen sink and in many other ways in life. But goodness, at the very least, is the active outworking of what God is doing on the inside. And verse 9 encourages us in Galatians chapter 6. If you'd like to turn it, turn to it with me. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 lists the fruit of the Spirit. And we'll take a moment just to read how Paul continues. And so if you want to turn with me, it's page 1172 in the Bibles in the pew. And chapter 6 says, Brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to someone else, for each one should carry his own load. Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. And Paul encourages us not to grow weary in doing good, which means this is an activity that can make us tired. All of us know the reality of labor that's exhausting. And Paul is quite clear in saying this is something that will exhaust you. It will drain you. So be prepared, but don't give up. And that might mean physically exhausting work of caring for a family or building a business or the emotionally challenging work of teaching an unruly class or dealing with demanding people. Goodness may be that inner quality, but it is active. It does something. And so what does goodness look like in our lives? The author of this passage, Paul, as he was writing to the Galatians, what did you think of his list? 
He must have had some pretty high expectations for the people he was writing to. He says, restore people, restore those who get caught, and you yourself should be careful not to fall in the same way. He says, bear each other's burdens. Don't isolate yourself from the problems of others and hope that you won't get pulled down. Don't give in to the danger of comparing yourself with others. It's very easy to find someone against whom you look quite good. Paul says, don't do that. That is not good. Rather, he says, examine your own work. Just because you're maybe part of a great team doesn't mean you're the magic ingredient. And Paul's saying, be careful about the work that you're doing. Recognize that it needs to be examined carefully. And he says, share good things with those who teach you. Goodness shouldn't be hoarded. It should be given away. And in verses 7 and 8, he says, don't think that somehow you can sow all sorts of selfish seeds and still come up smelling of roses. That's a kind of an idea that we have about things that we do. Somehow or other, somebody who always gets into those kind of awkward situations, we say, well, he always seems to come up smelling of roses. And with that, there is this solemn warning which says these words, God is not mocked. And so as we so wisely in our lives. Here are a list of things that Paul's setting out, at least in the immediate passage after the fruit of the Spirit, saying, this is what goodness looks like. What do you think it would be to be examined by Paul if he was your boss and he was looking at your life under this lens, saying, well, how are you doing? He certainly sets a very high standard but thankfully, he tells us a bit about his own life and how he measures up when it comes to goodness. You may be familiar with this passage in Romans 7 where he says he, he, he so much wants to do good things. But there is this war going on within him. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And Paul brings us into the reality of his own struggle, probably well on to his the end of his life where he's still wrestling with this struggle of good and evil. And that is the reality of the context for each one of us, that we are caught in a battle. We're not there yet. And Paul, therefore, is saying, don't give up. Keep practicing these good things. And goodness is not just based on Sunday activity, and neither is it very easy to define. When Amy was a few weeks old, Janet was asked, well, is she a good baby? Now, I have no idea what that question means at all. I suppose it means, does she drink milk and does she sleep? That's what babies do. That's what good babies are meant to do. But it's one of those questions that seems to me to be a bit daft. And I think one of the challenges for us with goodness is, Working out what does it mean 
We'll come back to this in a moment, but here's a, a quick recap of where we've got to. Paul has set out nine aspects of this one fruit of the Spirit, nine of this singular fruit. It's unlike the gifts of the Spirit that are distributed variously to different people. If someone claims to be strong in one area, maybe they're strong in the patience department, but they are struggling in the joy department. Paul would say they're not displaying the spiritual life. This is something that grows together and we cannot separate them. To cultivate some without others is to be a lopsided Christian, to have that kind of misshapen fruit where it's all going one way. And to think about the first three that we covered early on in this series, they primarily concern our relationship with God. Here's a kind of a way of just recapping and perhaps categorizing, classifying these. Love, joy, peace are expressed most deeply when we're in relating to God. And so it's part of our vertical relationship. And then the second are social virtues where patience is needed with people who wind us up. And we all have met such people. Maybe we've all met that person. Kindness is how we decide to respond to other people. And goodness has to do with our words and deeds towards other people. And so the second group is probably how we relate to others. And then the third group describes how we relate to ourselves as people who could be described as faithful or reliable Gentleness is that ability that directs our strengths appropriately and self-control is how we manage our lives in the midst of all sorts of pressures so that we don't just go off. How are they classified? Well, how we relate to God, to others and ourselves. And we come tonight to this subject of goodness and what kind of goodness is this? Is it just the bland reference to being a good person. Most people think moral goodness comes from ourselves. It's intuitive. You kind of get that gut feeling of what goodness is. There's some inner awareness of what is good. We, we feel it inside and we say, yeah, that feels pretty good or that's a good job or the boy done good. You know, we have these kind of ways of defining what goodness is. That's a good thing to do. There's a good person. And we have our own compass for determining whether something is good or not. And then people around us help us think about goodness. And society influences what we think is good and what's bad. It helps us determine goodness. We all voted and the majority of us agree that this is what it should be. And it's very easy to believe that democracy is a way of uh, deciding on goodness. Or there's cultural ideas of goodness. What's good? Well, cultural ideas do run into a bit of a difficulty. Those who live in India love to eat with their hands. And those of us from the West who are very hygiene oriented, I think, 
why would you put your hands in your mouth? That's so messy. It is quite a skillful thing. I'm happy to give a demonstration to anybody who wants to see how to eat rice with your hands. It's, it's wonderful. It's the right way to eat. But from another perspective, people say, well, really, I only put these hands in my mouth. You put bits of metal in your mouth that have been in lots of other people's mouths. So uh, we see that goodness and what's right and wrong become a little bit blurred when it's read under a cultural lens. But we have our own struggles as well this week. Belfast News talked about traffic management, and according to Danny Kennedy, it's good when the number of cars in Belfast is reduced by 6,000 every day. But traders have another view on that, and cyclists have another view, and believe it or not, even cyclists uh, can get riled with car drivers, but we'll, we'll leave that one for now. That's, it's not for tonight, but people who make up their own definitions of goodness often find evil inexplicable. It may be a criticism that's leveled against people who believe in God, saying, well, how can you believe in God when there's so much evil in the world? And yet, how many who reject God have no way to answer questions about violence, about personal evil, and even the greatest evil of all, which is death? Or, or maybe that's just natural. Jesus was stopped on a journey by someone who had a good life by all accounts. He was a good man. And his respectful address of good teacher received this reply. You know what he said. No one's good except God alone. And he summarized the Bible's teaching about God that he is absolutely good without any trait of badness. God is good in his very being. God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. That's a saying that you often hear in Africa. And it's something that I think is a, a reminder to us. And yet it's difficult. It takes an effort to agree on our part because we find it difficult to think that there is no evil in God at all. And sometimes we see the way life pans out and we think, God, that's not fair. It shouldn't be like this. And yet he's absolutely good. We rebel against the idea of God being completely good and yet that is the biblical account. That's how God is presented in his word from the very beginning. God created this world and what did he say? It is good. Everything he did was good. Here's a question. Why doesn't God make Adam on day one? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. Because if he created Adam on day one, it would have been a dark place. There would have been nowhere for him to stand. And God is love and everything that he does is good. And if you can picture God creating this world as he speaks it into being, it's an expression of who he is, of his goodness, of his love. And so God doesn't just plonk Adam in the middle of nowhere, a sweltering arid desert or on the top of a Himalayan mountain with wind at 100 miles an hour or a, an iceberg floating in the North Atlantic. No, he puts him in the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> A fertile garden of delight 
as the Hebrew describes Eden, with clean air to breathe, fresh water to drink, delicious food to eat, animals to look after, God's presence to enjoy. So God is good, and he made a good world. But the Bible is the story of our rebellion against God's goodness. And and this is where it becomes uncomfortable. Because it introduces us to the reality of a malevolent being who casts doubt over God's goodness and sows ideas of rebellion against God's goodness. And it was into this perfectly good world that Satan drives a wedge between us and God's goodness and life. And yet, he's still a good God. Despite our rebellion and saying, no, God is still good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Everyone, whether we accept him or not, experiences good and can do good. We're not all totally bad or totally fallen. Far from it. Because of God's goodness, we reflect so much of his image, which is good. But neither are we ever good enough to be justified before his holiness and all his perfection. Lots of people doubt that. Lots of people, even Christians, find that difficult, saying, well, I'm doing my best, you know. Don't think I'm all that bad. I'm really living a pretty good life. We're uncomfortable with the idea of sin and personal evil. And we'd hate to describe ourselves for anyone else like that. We're prepared to say, yeah, I'm not perfect. But not go as far as to say that the darkness within us is enough to separate me from God. So here's a question to think about as we get back to goodness. What did we do when Jesus came into this world? Jesus, who was God, the Son of God, John 1 tells us that the Word became flesh. And if he's God, then he is what it looks like to be perfectly good, to be a perfectly good human being. That's a fair deduction. So everything we see about Jesus is the Bible's definition of good. And what did we do with Jesus? Well, we loved him. I'm using we in the corporate sense because I think all of us would have loved him if we'd listened to him, loved his miracles, loved his rebellious teaching against those self-righteous hypocrites of the religious leaders. We loved his compassion. We loved his ability to feed the hungry and to heal the sick. We loved him. Everything about him is so lovely and impressive and good. But we began to reject him when he started talking about suffering on the cross. In John 6, 66, it says many turned their back. And so we loved him, but then we walked away when he talked about the cross. And his closest friends even denied that they knew him. One of them fled naked to get away from him on the cross and the rest crucified him. And Jesus who comes in love, goodness personified to be our redeemer, 
In our horror against goodness, we crucified him. What do we do with Jesus? That's what we did. And yet amazingly, in our rejection of him, he works out the salvation we need. God is good all the time. We're more sinful than we dare imagine, and yet we're more loved than we ever thought possible. And that gives us hope. He gives himself to us. Even in our rejection, he says, I died to pay the price. He defeated death and all that separates us from this God of goodness. So in contrast to that death-deserving rebellion, the new relationship we have with Jesus is life-giving. And the fruit of that is about his own goodness, his life beginning to fill ours and bear fruit that looks like himself. The Bible is full of teaching about goodness that overcomes evil. From personal stories of goodness, you know the story of Joseph when he meets his brothers who sold him into slavery, slavery and then came looking to him for hope. And this Jesus-type character says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And the people of God often lost sight in this life of blessing and substituted it for empty rituals. And Micah the prophet says, he has told you what's good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly before your God. And if that's all you take away tonight, that's enough because God's told you what's good and told you to do it. And if that's all we can grasp, then we can pack up and go home and say, God is good all the time. And I, as I am filled with the Spirit, can follow in his footsteps. As Jesus' disciples were told that living this life out will let others see God's goodness. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Some of us feel, well, this is too much. It's too difficult. A lot of people back away from Christianity because they say, I could never live that kind of life. And if the whole idea of keeping up with this radically changed life is too scary, we're encouraged that being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. What about being good then? How does that work out tomorrow at the kitchen sink, throughout the day, with all the challenges of this week? What's likely to stop you living out this completely different kind of life, this life of goodness? I think Christian goodness in the eyes of many is something that's the opposite to a full life. The description of a do-gooder which I'm sure you hear from many people, amounts to nothing more than a sort of bland niceness where there are people who help old ladies across the street, but really pretty useless when it comes to sorting out tensions in local communities and migrants in South Belfast. That's not the job of a nice person. 
And that's one of the reasons why we hold back, perhaps, because we are frightened of being labelled as a do-gooder, as a nice person. That's, there's something lacking. It's, it's, it's lost its taste. And then there's some people who display such goodness that's so compelling and powerful but make no claim to be godly. And they have the capacity for goodness that puts us to shame. Jesus told the story of a man who outshone the religious leaders in his goodness with his exceptional display of goodness to a victim of crime. And yet he came from that religion that had big problems and so much so that even walking down their street was not good for you. And yet Jesus turned it on his head. In the last few minutes, I hope you'll see that goodness is the opposite of a kind of bland niceness and a quality that's so like God's character that its authentic display can only be experienced by the Spirit of God working in a person. I wonder, have you ever experienced peeling a a large, delicious-looking orange and thinking, I'm going to sink my teeth into this and it just looks so good, only to be uh, disappointed you've discovered it's dried up and pretty tasteless. And uh, it promised something that it didn't deliver. I know we shouldn't be biting into one another. The Bible's quite clear about that. But there are times when I want to taste this fruit of the Spirit in the lives of people around me. I want to taste that spiritful life that we have and get something that really is truly satisfying. And it might be painful at times. It might be that there's times of disappointment and loss and yet in those painful times we can taste real goodness in the lives of one another. It might be where someone has rolled up their sleeves and got their hands dirty in the mess of other people's lives. And yet it's in those moments that we can see and taste goodness, the goodness of this spiritual life flowing out and blessing others. It might be in getting glimpses of how you're persevering in a tough workplace. Where you feel that all the goodness is just drained out of you every day. Well, Romans 12 has lots of phrases that are very similar to this passage that we read in Galatians chapter 6, like test and approve what God wants, don't overestimate yourself, care for one another, use your gifts to build one another up. It starts just like that same passage, but it goes on to give us a very clear picture of goodness. And here's a, a list that I want to just put up and let you think about and taste and consider what will goodness look like as I go from here. You may not be able to see it in detail, but if you have Romans 12, you'll see it very clearly. Here's goodness. Hate what is evil. That's goodness. Cling to what is good. That's goodness. Be devoted to one another in love. That's goodness. Honour one another above yourselves. That's goodness. 
Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. That's goodness. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. That's goodness. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. That's goodness. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Imagine what would happen in that encounter as somebody who is cursing you and you're blessing them. That is goodness. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. That's goodness. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in harmony. Don't be proud. I'm not able to keep up with myself. But be willing to associate with people of low position. That's goodness. And it's wonderful to see you and others when you sit alongside someone who the world doesn't notice. Don't be proud. Don't be conceited. Don't pay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's goodness. I've often referred to a friend of mine who says, I have determined not to take offense. That's goodness. Don't take revenge. Care for your enemy. And finally, Paul says at the end of that list, overcome evil with good. And here is something so strong and so sweet that challenges us to display goodness. There's nothing bland about this list. If we're going to display the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, then this list gives us plenty of opportunity to let our light shine and let the world see that it overcomes darkness. So how do you cultivate that fruit? How are we going to nurture this in our lives? If we see goodness in the non-Christian, then how are we going to have any confidence to say that this is what God desires? Well, finally, we're encouraged in Galatians 5 to sow goodness. And as Paul describes what is being sown. Of course, there is that supernatural life of the Spirit. It's supernatural in origin, but it's natural in its growth. And that is the metaphor that Paul uses here in Galatians chapter 5 and 6. There's two truths that need to be held together. God's work in us is supernatural. He has implanted his life in us, and yet it's natural in its growth because we provide the conditions for that. Our time's up. From a gardener's point of view, what's natural is always conditional. The gardener creates the conditions. So what about us as we think about goodness? Are we creating the conditions to allow this supernatural seed to grow? That's the encouragement that Paul gives us in Galatians 5 and 6. And it means that every day,
by God's help, we are sowing not to the flesh, but we're making decisions to sow to the Spirit. And you know this parable, I'm sure, very well. The principle invariably <clears throat> is always whatever you sow, that's what you reap. If you want to reap wheat, you don't sow oats or barley and go out and hope that someday it'll turn into wheat. If you want to sow goodness in your life, you don't sow bitterness, envy, strife, hatred, pride. No. So the challenge for us is to sow the right seed, believing that some of this starts with us. We sometimes think, well, this is a spirit-led work, a spirit-filled life. Yes, we need the Holy Spirit of God, but we also provide the conditions. And we simply do the things that Jesus calls us to do, trusting the Holy Spirit's natural life. We become his field and cultivate that goodness that blesses those around us. So may you have a good week. Thank you.